What would you do if you were stuck on a cruise ship for two months with no way of getting off? How would you spend the time? How would you cope with cabin fever? I got an idea of doing classics, classic theatrical shows that were about isolation. The Three Sisters. Hello, I am Masha, middle sister. Masha, Masha, Masha. And what would it be like to do it all from things found in the cabin? Well, I had a terrible wig. I had Duna. I had um, some costumes. I had, you know, two rooms to film in. And then that just became um, really fun to do. I really, it saved my life. <laughs> it really did. Hi, this is In The Making, a podcast by Makeshift that explores creativity as a prescription for challenging times. I'm Jennifer Macy, and Makeshift is a support and education agency that connects creativity and mental health for social change. In 2020, we all experienced some sort of cabin fever, stuck at home during lockdown. But for Drew Fairley, a cabaret performer working on a cruise ship, cabin fever became a scary reality when he got caught up in the chaos of the COVID outbreak. The cruise ship Drew was on was ejected out of Australia without anyone checking if any Australian citizens were on board, leaving Drew and two other Australians in a diplomatic limbo on international waters, literally stranded on the high seas. To keep boredom and fear at bay, Drew turned to his craft and made poignant and hilarious video skits for Instagram. As Drew talks about in this episode, the videos not only gave him a purpose and a reason to laugh, but they connected with people around the world as we all went through our own version of isolation and fear in a global crisis. And just a quick heads up, this conversation may be confronting for some people, so please take care while listening. Um, my name is Drew Fairley and I'm a actor, um, but also I went to the creative arts course in Wollongong, at Wollong- the University of Wollongong, which is an inter-arts course. So I kind of, I suppose I do um, involve as many of the arts as possible in whatever I make. The primary art is acting. But at the moment, I'm looking at uh, the idea of cabaret portraiture. So I like the idea of creating theatrical portrait, almost like you you would like in a gallery where you go past someone's portrait. And I, I would say that that's the monologue is what you see. And then I do a song that goes with it, which is usually the bit of writing off to the side of the painting where you find out more and what year it was made and what the artist was thinking. So I use those two things to to create characters, and then those characters sit usually within a theme. And um, in the last few years, I've looked at toxic masculinity, uh, toxic relationships, and this latest one, I'm looking at the disappearing of people during their life when they actually start to evaporate during their own living. So writing is a big part of your creative practice. Yeah, yeah, it has been. I didn't used to write. I used to just write, but in the last... 15 years or so, I kind of have really gone to writing as a place. Then the other great thing about theatrical writing is that all these other things, actors, designers, directors come in and they interpret the work. So it's really, um, even though it's a singular art form, it uh, eventually turns into a group. It's beautiful that Mm. way. And how important is humour as part of your creative practice? Uh, Well, it's been... (laughs) 
has been um, really without my choice quite an important part. I did really want to be a dramatic actor. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. I know. This, unfortunately, this is what's happened, is I wanted so much. Oh, I just wanted to be, you know, that skivvy-wearing kind of pouting kind of actor. And I started an accidental stand-up career in the UK because of this preposterous sort of guy that I had created, this sort of, you know, uh, skivvy-wearing guy. And I stood up on stage and I had an accordion and I was going to play some very serious Scottish songs in Scotland. And as I stood there, I went, I can't do it. There's no way I can possibly do this serious song in Scotland when I'm not even from Scotland. So I started to just ramble on a bit like this. (laughs) I filled up time and then I had a stand-up career. <laughs> and then I went, oh, well, that's where the cash is coming from, so I should probably stay there. But as far as the work, it's really important. Um, it does two things. I think, firstly, it kind of makes you realise that the world is really a bunch of choices rather than you just, when you come with something very serious, that's the only choice. Like it's sort of this very serious choice and you have to really think deeply. But actually the truth is thinking happens all the time. And when you're kind of having a great time and throwing your head back and laughing, you're still doing all the thinking. So it doesn't have to be that. And it sort of it disarms people in some ways too, particularly if you do work like I do, which is sort of issue-based. You don't want people to kind of come to a lecture where they're just going to be hearing what I think about it. It has to be from them. It has to be their thoughts. So laughter sort of loosens that up a bit. All right, Mm. let's talk about the ship. So I arrived on the ship on Friday the 13th, 13th of March, ominous, (laughs) I should have known. And so that weekend around the 13th, 14th was a sort of tipping point, I think, in Australia. So COVID-19 felt like before Friday the 13th, it was sort of an idea. People talk about barbecues and stuff, but really life was kind of just, you know, you're being careful or not. And then after it became official... I think it was called a pandemic around that weekend too. So that was when it really shifted. And so I was on the ship because I had signed up and I was under contract to turn up. And if I didn't turn up, the contract would be be breach of contract. And then we had passengers for three days. And And where were they going? Was this an international cruise? No, this one, uh, that particular cruise that I was on was only little trips to Eden, um, we were going to go to other islands just off Queensland. So we went up and down the coast quite a bit. That was pretty much what we did. So just stuck to the east coast of Australia. Yeah. The first trip I went on was going to just go to Eden. So it's really short and they were sometimes just three days long. And how long was your contract? I was contracted for two months, um, which ironically was the amount of time that I was on the ship. <laughs> it was so weird. It's like my contract finished and then we got rescued. <laughs> We got on, there were passengers, then we all tours were suspended for 30 days. So the end of, halfway through that first tour of three days, people then left and we were going, no more tours for 30 days. Then they got extended to 60. The rule of thumb was because we were employed by the company, we had to stay on the ship. Then there was a very sliding logic place where suddenly there was the Australian government. Um, New South Wales government, rather, was saying we 
we could we couldn't get off the ship, so we were then locked in the ship, but we were in Sydney at White Bay, and that was for two weeks. So we had a quarantine, and I think the idea was at the end of that quarantine we'd be allowed to be released because we cle- we were temperature checked every day and checked. So there was no never COVID on the ship. And then at the end of that 14 days, in a very weird twist of fate, related to the story of the Ruby Princess and the sort of PR nightmare, we had to leave Sydney waters. We had to leave the harbour. All the ships left. And then we were set outside in a thing called being set adrift, which is where you just wait outside until a dock is available. So we are just outside Sydney. You could sort of see Sydney. And then another day, which was the strangest day, I think, of my life, we then were heading north. I thought Gladstone maybe, well, it's sort of Queensland. And then we just suddenly turned right and now we were no longer in Australian waters because the Australian government had said we had to leave. And on that day, there was a a bit of a clunk inside me where I went, oh, this is not just another thing, we are actually now no longer going back to Australia. We're going further and further away from the town that I live in. I could have just walked off two days ago with my bags and now I'm very, very in the ocean. And at that same time, the internet stopped working because you buy the the region and they hadn't bought that region because they never expected to be in the Pacific. And then we were heading north to, we found out we were going to the Philippines and I kind of thought that was great but then I was also like what's happening hello and welcome to another episode of actual cabin actual fever where I am actually truly in the middle of the ocean in international waters we are today adrift we are waiting for some other ships to join us I don't know why but we are doing that and uh then we're all going to the Philippines didn't expect that. Lots of unexpected things here on board the ship and also unexpected things there on land. So I know now the time, by the time you get this video, uh, I might be back in Australia. So, but who are you in contact with? How was information being passed to you? We had an Italian captain who I loved. He's actually a really amazing person, but he gave very... Um, amazing announcements where he would spend most of the time talking about the weather, which was interesting, but then there'd be no information. And he'd go, goodbye, beautiful crew. And we'd go, what's happening? So I got used to – two things happened. Firstly, it was lack of information from the outside world. There was no TV. There was no internet. I didn't know what was happening. The whole world could have been on fire. I wouldn't have known. I couldn't get hold of any friends. There was no way of getting contact with me unless they spent $700 on the telephone. Then, because I hadn't – downloaded anything i was just sitting in my room contemplating stuff and hearing tiny bits of information that didn't mean anything so then i started to go into this world where i stopped eating i just went it's better to just i actually went into a weird uh social atrophy i just stopped wanting to connect it was a like an animal thing of going it'd be better if i just cease it's almost like a if i just stop everything it'll it'll be kind of better in the long run such an interesting choice. And then there was a silencing thing which happens in big groups. You know, this is how it works in a big group. When there's a big group of people, I I MC for a living, so I know what you do, is you tell people things that will help them and you leave out information that will get them alarmed. So that's what they were doing. They were taking out all the information that was alarming. So, And I was aware of that and I was going, okay, we're just being drip-fed 
tiny bits of information that are just um, status quo. Nothing's, it's like we're just on the, we're on the ocean. This was almost the information we were getting. I went, yeah, I feel like everyone's really across that piece of <laughs> Like, we get it. Yeah. And then he would talk about beautiful clouds and stuff. And I go, oh, that's kind of nice. But then I had another incident, which is really um, where I went, hmm, I'm really in this by myself, where I saw the captain and he's a very nice man. And he went, hello. And I went, hi. And he said, um, where are you from? And I went, oh, Australia. And he went, no, you're not. <laughs> you're from America. And I went, I'm not. I'm Australian. And he went, we're in Australia. I went, Sydney, where we had just been. And then he just went away. <laughs> so he knew that was bad. Yeah, he didn't know that I was on the ship. And and nobody from the government made contact with you or checked whether no. any customs officials? Well, it feels like the list would just be so easy. I mean, we had our passports taken and everything. The and I don't know the truth around everything I'm about to say is speculation, but the idea is that it was just easier to get all the ships out there. It was such a scramble that they didn't check lists because the idea of Australian citizens, and there were three to be taken away from Australia into international waters without any sort of visa or check. I mean, it just feels like crazy town. When it came to talking about that, I think the Australian police had been really kind of hasty, um, I think, the GAN speculation. But what what ended up happening is a bit of a conversation about going, well, we told you you could get off. Apparently this was the story and we were just never, ever given the opportunity to leave. I'm not someone who lives in a world of alarm, so I'd just be like, oh, I'll be fine. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. It's close to midnight. It's not close to midnight. It's only it's only about eight thirty. But it's essentially, as far as I'm concerned, that's midnight. Because at eight thirty is when I start to go. Oh well, I've done that walking over there, and I did that walking over there, and I and then I got myself into another parsnip experience because it's just parsnip soup again today, which I love parsnip soup, and I'm not complaining about it, but it's always there, and it's very rarely there now. It's always there, and then I went out into the deck, and then I spent a little time going, "Oh my god, the city's so incredible, it's so clean, it's so amazing." I said that same thing over again: the pollution, pollution, it's so good, don't do all that. And then I got down here, and I went, "Oh god, that was a really tough 15 minutes." I leaned. And I think it's because I come from a theatre background and a creative background, leaned 100% into the absurdity. There were images that were so Castellucci on that ship. There were images that were so kind of, you know, new wave cinema. I just was seeing over and over incredible things. And I leaned 100% into that. The images of everything wrapped in plastic in massive ballrooms and all the chairs being taken away, the pool being completely empty, but still there. And all these sort of like, you know, pictures of people having a great time in amongst everything wrapped in plastic. I went, this is, this is, these are the images of my time. And I wanted to absorb that as sort of as much as possible. And then there was sort of creative fatigue at the same time because I was going, I don't know what I'm doing this for. I'm actually in shock, but I feel like it's probably good. I had a camera. There's nothing on my camera to watch except images of myself or things that I photographed. <laughs> So when did when did actual cabin actual fever start and what was the idea behind it? Well, it's interesting because it started in quarantine in Sydney. I did season one in Sydney. I loved calling them different seasons as if they were <laughs> HBO sort of sorted it out for me. And I was just chatting to the camera. There was a lot of um, people, like content coming out from people who'd not necessarily done. You know, there were people who did dancing who'd never danced before. There were people who did art who'd never done art before. I loved it. I loved the content push at the beginning 
people need to see Be- things. Beginning of lockdown. Yeah, beginning of lockdown because suddenly there were so many people I knew who didn't, who weren't artists, who were really going straight into an art form to express their feelings of cabin fever. And then I realised I was in an actual cabin. <laughs> and I went, it couldn't get better. So I made a rule that I would just do this little talk show. I would never leave the cabin. I would only ever use things from the cabin. So series one is much more me just chatting really listlessly to the camera. It's just very listless. All I do is kind of talk about things. Sometimes they're not interesting, but I just keep chatting. I've just been on the ship. I've just been doing my thing. I've been making Actual Cabin, Actual Fever. That You're watching that. If you're new to Actual Cabin, Actual Fever, and this is your first episode, go back to the start. I think I gave all my good stuff in the first episode. But since then, it's just been... It's you are participating in my therapy. Therapy. Do I need therapy? Mm. One day I went upstairs. I decided to walk because I was just staying in my cabin. So I went for a walk upstairs early in the morning and I saw a manta ray in the ocean. They're huge. I was 14 stories in the air and it looked gigantic. And there's only me and one engineer who saw it together. And we both sort of smiled at each other and kind of went, oh. And there's this nice moment. I went, oh, there's other humans here. And I'm in this incredible natural wonderland. And something just inspired me to go, okay, well, we have to keep doing some of your shows, even though they're, they're clearly not anywhere near as noble as that. <laughs> I've went, I've got to keep going. And I went down and started to film series two which had a lot more production because I had all day. I just could, I got an idea of doing classics, classic theatrical shows that were about isolation, the three sisters and the metamorphosis. Yeah. I decided it would be good to do these classics and what would it be like to do it all from things found in the cabin? And So props and... Yeah. Well, I had a terrible wig. I had Duna. I had um, some costumes. I had, you know two rooms to film in, and then that just became um, really fun to do. I really, it saved my life. <laughs> I really did. G'day. My name is Bernard St. Bernard, and by the time you see this, I'll be changed into a different outfit. Wonders of television. Sit back, relax, and pretend to enjoy today's show. Where did the character Bernard St. Bernard come from or was he the host? Yeah, he was sort of, oh, he was an interesting guy because I, when I did Series 1 it was very, it was really just I would put it on and I would turn it off the camera and then I would just send. I, there was no editing. I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to do it. But because I had all this time I went, oh, I think I'll just give it a little, I wanted to kind of create a bit of a George Negus character who's sort of with the jacket over his shoulder and he was a bit cool and he'd be sort of introducing stuff and I liked the um, vocal pattern that those those guys of that era kind of have where everything's kind of like they're doing a big ad for some whiskey somewhere. They kind of just all speak like that. and But also then Bernard St. Bernard kind of became a character unto himself. I think he, he didn't know he's on the ship. <laughs> he didn't like me. He wasn't really, <laughs> he wasn't a fan. He was just doing it for money. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could all get some sleep. Oh, good day. My name is Bernard St. Bernard and I am a fox jockey. In today's episode of Actual Cabin, Actual Fever, actor and 
wannabe cruise ship bingo caller Drew Fairley finds his future self and sings a little song. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Did it become the focus of your day? Is that, you know how people, when they were in lockdown, they would have really regimented days. Okay, I'm going to get up, I'm going to make my bed, I'm going to put normal clothes on Mm. just to get through this day. Mm. Was it like that for you, making these productions, these episodes? In, uh, uh, yes, it, it was as far as I liked to do it, but I often didn't. I'd only made 20 episodes over two months, so I they weren't every day. We had to get temperature checked every single morning, mm-hmm. so that was a real wake up, and I would try and put on great outfits. I decided that was going to be – I didn't have much to go with, but I went, I'm going to dress up all the time as something to do and I went for a walk every morning. So I had those sorts of things. I looked at the ocean every day because, my God, I don't think I'd ever understood. No one said you would be that in love with it. It's uh, it's absolutely heartbreakingly beautiful every day. So I looked at it every day because I knew that was good and I do all that sort of stuff. I did every single day go down and get a little pastry from the cafe. <laughs> I don't know why. It just felt good. Um, then I wouldn't eat, so I just had pastry. But um, I remember when I started doing the shows, at the same time I had a, an article released in the Sydney Morning Herald about this sort of leaning into the absurdity and also the silver lining story. And I, even though that was that literally happened to me, when I was reading it I went, oh, I think I could be having, with this creative endeavour, I could be having a nice time. This whole weird isolated, um, petrified nightmare could be better if I continued this story. Because it's almost like reading it from the outside. I read the article and went, oh, that's me. I've got a, I am sort of creating comedy and lightheartedness. So I should maybe (laughs) get into that a bit more. So at first you were creating that lightheartedness for the audience. Yeah. And then in season two, it was really for yourself. Yeah. And there's a, in season two, What's obvious now from the outside is the the sort of duplicity of it. So there's the, you know, fun and whatever, but I'm losing it. And there's some episodes where I very clearly I've cracked and some of them I was a bit unsure how to put out and I went, well, I suppose at the moment everyone's doing something, everyone, our emotional world is so important to kind of talk about and admit. And I wanted that story to be out there and what happened when I put out stuff that was emotional is that I just got lots of feedback from people all over the world who actually just needed to have a laugh and realise that someone else was also really trapped. And I, not that I'm I'm no superhero sort of experience, but I did go, God, we've got this amazing machine, the internet, and we don't talk about that much. So I was glad that 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 created some sort of response in that direction. All this is just a cry for help. No, no. It's not people to like you and you there's no people and so now it's just a cry for help. It's not. Cry for help. No 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 no. Cry for help. No 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 no. Cry for help. No 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 no. Gotta cry for help here on level four. No no no. Give me a K. Give me an R. Okay then, it's not a cry for help. 
You don't need any help. You're totally okay. But if it's not a cry for help, then... I know that was for me as a as an audience. It felt like your experience was the embodiment of what we all were sort of going through, yeah, right. but like concentrated <laughs> and slightly dangerous. Yeah, yeah. A little it. The ending was unsure. That was the thing. I think this is what, as human beings, if we sort of know that we're going to be. You know, for example, you're working really hard in three jobs to be able to save up money for something. You That period of awfulness is okay. But more and more in our world, you just don't know what that response, you don't know what the ending is going to be. And it's not going to something of betterment. There was a time where we were going through pirate infested waters. There was a time where we, there was, they were talking about, you know, December and January is the time we get off the ship. There was a time where the idea of getting off the ship was so unsafe in Manila. People were getting off the ship. This happened many times. And we go, bye. And then they'd go to the airport, be in quarantine for two days in one room by themselves and come back to the ship. And then they had to be in quarantine in the ship. All the Filipino people in the ship in Manila were in quarantine for 40 days. <gasps> couldn't leave their rooms. Yeah. There, was, there was so much craziness. So it's sort of the, the kind of lightheartedness was also there. I mean, this is the other thing, as I was saying before, in tragedy, there's always comedy. Mm. And I heard more Mariah Carey songs on that ship than I've ever. <laughs> um, lots of fun things happen on the ship. Um, people, there's a lot of really great Mariah Carey being sung, uh, just willy-nilly. Anytime you go anywhere upstairs, there'll be someone singing a bit of Mariah. So, you know, if she came to concert here, that would be great. And, um... It's uh, also, I think we're sort of like, it's, it's that, you know, when lockdown is a, is a psychological process defined usually by knowing when the, your exit date will be and no one knows when that is. And again, when I speak about my experience, it's the same as everybody else's, except that it's a ship. That's what makes it different. I'm just a guy living in Balmain. So how long would it take to make one episode? Well, I kind of, um, firstly, I got in the the mood. Weeks would go by when I'd make nothing. So I'd be sort of in the mood. I don't know how that happened. But I'd wrap up about 4 3.30 and I'd wake up because I wanted to sort of be there for the sunrise and and then I would kind of just look at the ocean and see what kind of came. I usually had a bit of an idea of what it would be, but like with writing, I went, well, I suppose I'll just set some parameters and what I'd like to talk about today, sometimes the talk was just a talk, but sometimes there were production numbers with dancing and a whole bunch of stuff. And I would go down to my room and begin. I always tried to film it in the morning because the lighting was really good in the morning and that the lighting in the cabin was so good for me. It was just went, God, I could never look better. And then I would edit it in – I tried to edit in the same day. So I'd try and just knock it out in one day. And sometimes the editing was really infuriating because I did it all on my phone, so it was tiny. And I was moving my big fat fingers across things and just like going, I just want to be here. <laughs> so so you did all the video editing on your phone, not yeah. on the laptop? Yeah, no, my laptop wouldn't. I had a laptop, but it wouldn't connect to the internet and I couldn't, it wasn't airdropping or anything. So it was this weird world of go. And then when I went to send it, because I'm a Luddite, I thought it would just be easier for my phone because that's where all the data is. So I did it all on my phone and it, 
again, like this is this thing. I think that in the creative world, if you have these limitations, that's when it starts to really. I got really used to not knowing what the editing would be like when I was doing it because I couldn't see it. So I go, I'll just go by feel, which I think a lot of editors do anyways. Go, I think it's going to be here. <laughs> but it wasn't just editing film. You were also singing. Yeah. And yeah. playing music on your mm. phone. Yeah. So I'd make the tracks, usually beforehand, I usually had the track made because sometimes I would just play with tracks, like making stuff on GarageBand. And then I'd make it into some sort of production number. So when I did my first, first song, the first one ever, I went, oh, I don't know if people would want to, because it's a talk show, do they want a song? And people loved it. They really loved it. They actually found it really funny and kind of slightly upbeat and whatever. I went, oh, well, that's cool. I'll just do some more. And so, that was still back in when you were in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, it was really, that was really early on. It was easy. It was the last one I did in Sydney was a singing one. And then weeks went by before I kind of got to do season two. And I would make the music often on a different day. So it was often pre-made and then I would sort of pull it together. But then as I was editing, I'd go, oh, it would be really good, it would be really terrific if all this character from before comes in and maybe, oh, there's so many great moments of me just staring at the wall because the films, even though they were seven minutes long, they took, I would film for 40 minutes. I just filmed, I just would keep filming until I said something. (laughs) So there is reams of footage of me staring at walls, sometimes quite disappointed with myself. <laughs> Just going, this is not good. This is not a good chat. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. Wow. The songs were genius. The lyrics, they're they're these pop songs sung Mm. in this melancholic, mournful, but, you know, teetering on the edge, Mm. dark edge. Mm. One of them, you know, Eurythmic Sweet Dreams just became very dangerous. Yes. (laughs) Dark. Travel the world at the seas. I know. Thank you, Annie and Dave. Like all Mm. of these lyrics just became incredibly poignant. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a really, really great song. And it's, there's something about being on the, a cruise luxury liner, which is a sweet dream. It was also around a time when I was starting to go, okay, this, is an, this experience with all its dread and whatever is also really a, a new frontier experience. And um, like every creative person, those moments don't come often and, you know, we all were in this incredible world where there was all the rules going to be changed and creative people are meant to be at the head of that. So I did a bit of a, you know, get it together, Drew. You can't just be sad. <laughs> I don't know who said that to me, but someone, my inner voice. And so that was a bit of a, it was like I was having a tongue lashing from my future self going, get it together. Because you had one sad episode. Mm. Uh, yeah, there was one. That was actually the day that we found out we were leaving Australian waters and I just went, oh, there is no hope. This sort of weird thing that happens when the hope drops away from you, like when it bottoms out 
And again, I suppose my life before that, I've been sort of, you know, traveling the world, doing shows, everything was just sort of kind of fun and great. And I was, you know, in hotels and no, no, no. And I don't think I'd ever done any thinking about, you know, me as a person. So suddenly there was a lot of time to think about it. And then when that dropped away, I did a very classic thing, which is I went, there is no one listening. I've disappeared. I've gone and no one can hear me because I, I couldn't tell if people could. I mean, that was filmed when I had no, no internet. So I just sort of, I had a little public freak out. And then as a person, I'm really interested in people um, expressing how they feel more often because I think our issue, and it's a capitalist issue, is that we just keep it all together because that's what's going to make us make money. And it means that incredible violence and anger happens because people bottle it all up. And I went, well, I suppose if I'm fear, I mean, really, that's what I think as a person. That's what I want to happen in the world. So I decided that I had to also do that. I feel uh, a sort of a veneer of shame for not coping at times. Um by putting myself into, I mean, I've learned this in the, really the last year. Um, I have been quite isolated before this experience anyway, but I um, have really learned that you are put yourself there. And, um, oh. <laughs> um, and then what happens is you feel like you're going to fall down the hole. And you do. And that is what happens. But once you're in the hole, you get to find out the size of the hole. And in my case, it's five feet and 10 inches deep. And I've got very bad upper body strength, so it's hard to get out, but I um, do. But yeah, so this is, this is a video about feelings. And I hope that you feel good about feeling bad. I really hope that. Um, I just want to celebrate you feeling that way as well. I want to let you know that there is loads of people are feeling it and I'm so happy to be human in this moment. I'm really happy. You said something like it's okay to have these feelings mm. because even though there was such a sort of strong push and a push towards the positivity, like it's mm. also okay to have those mm. darker, sadder, yeah. hopeless feelings. It's the full gamut of being a human. We have to keep remembering that's what we are. We're really flawed and they are the most spectacularly exquisite parts of us because otherwise we just, you know, we're not robots. We're not, you know, a piece of furniture. We've, we're these enormously complex and um, slightly dangerous things and that if you don't acknowledge that part, what I think happens, and I'm not a psychologist, but I think you stop acknowledging the good things too. You stop – if you don't have – the full acknowledgement of everything in your life, then you you sort of flatten everything out and then everything's okay. And then one day, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have done this where they've recently gone, what am I doing in my life? <laughs> and they always say, people on the deathbed, they go, why didn't I have more fun? They go, yeah, well, that's sometimes you did, but you didn't recognise it because you've cut off the extremes in your own life. Mm. A very, I knew compared to the rest of the world it was a mild freak out. I knew there were people in much worse situations, which I acknowledge. But even so, I went, well, I suppose we have to at times not compare ourselves to others. Mm. And go, this is very hard for me. 
Because mm. if you don't do that, what are we what are we doing? Mm. Like, you know, yeah, it's incredibly validating. Yeah. But then going back to you know leaning into that creativity, mm. you almost talked about it as a responsibility as a creative person. Mm. Yeah. Is that what yeah. it felt like or did it yes. feel or was it a responsibility to yourself? I think, no, I really do agree that once you sign up to being a creative person and an artist, you have certain responsibilities and they exist not just in your own process but you have to remember that are people you'll never meet who are incredibly inspired by what you've done. So there is this sort of extra responsibility. But I think it's really important and I think that at these new frontiers... It's all I've ever wanted. All I've ever wanted in the last 50 years is to have an opportunity which is where every single part of the puzzle is going to be rearranged and I'm there. It's actually incredibly, incredibly important to stay creative in these times because there's fluidity in creativity, there's safety in the new. You like new things, you like when things break apart and you get to go in there and try something else out. But there's also this um, connectivity within creativity where you can connect things that don't naturally go together. Incredible skills for this time. So the creative world, and I've said this many times, is on fire at the moment. The financial world in the creative world, no. (laughs) There's no money. But you know what? There are people who have wanted to do creative stuff who are finally doing it. There are people, there are artists who've gone from a sort of playing the system to just going, no, what do I want to say? I'm one of them. It's going, no, what do I actually want to say? I don't want to always be funny. I mean, I like it. I think it's really important, but I don't always want that. I want the sort of, um, you know, to feel happy about the enormously vulnerable parts of ourselves. I want that. And so this is a frontier that I think a lot of creative people and people who don't even call themselves creative are doing an amazing job at. So tell me about that teetering. I mean, you always end on a joke. Yeah. Well, or not always, but there's yeah. always lots of jokes. Yeah. But the audience feels like we're being pushed into a danger zone, like yeah. the edge of the cliff. Yeah. And you've described it as the edge of your own yeah. mental health cliff. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So we're wobbling there mm. and then you yank us back with laughter. Yeah, I think I think this in so many situations, the most depressed person on the planet can still laugh. Like we, you don't get robbed of comedy when things are bad. That's not what happens. And I think it's a very, oh, I don't know, I, I sort of sometimes feel like this is in literature. We've sort of created very dark characters that can never have a laugh. And I go, I think that's just the exact opposite. If I just sit in the kind of, which I did on the ship, just sit in the darkness and there I am, it's inert and every human has to move. It's sort of we all have to move somewhere. And comedy just sort of, it just like knocks you out a little bit or it sort of puts some oil into the mechanism somehow. And people who are in incredibly dark situations, um, I used to work a long time ago with homeless people who were in incredibly dark situations, hilarious. Because, you know, comedy is luxury. It's um, it's fun, it's free, and it doesn't have any confines. So in a way that drama, I suppose, does too. But I think that if you're in a really dark situation, then the funny part um, can really, really give you the light. And people do it. Hello, I am Mersha, middle sister. Mersha, Mersha, Mersha. Now, the other thing to make sure that you know is that this time in the three sisters, we are always on the ship. And so sometimes it gets a bit blindly material in our outfits. For example, I just found this curtain. I don't know what it normally does. 
here in my Kiapea, but I have been able to make it into a fantastic outfit to make sure that I still look gorgeous, good, gorgeous. So, so tell me about that, the, the Three Sisters episode mm. um, where you say that you were teetering on the edge. <gasps> so much. But it was hilarious. It's really hilarious. Well, exactly. I think that's actually all of them have a point because I've often been filming them and then the bit that you see is me talking, but then I often just go into a very dark place. The, the outtakes are just me staring at the floor and sometimes crying between takes because I cried a lot in the ship. I cried in the cabin all the time. I felt like it was... I was at one point going, well, you get there's a lot of moisture inside someone, hey? <laughs> you, you can really do it for a long time. So I'm in the cabin and I decided that day to do the Three Sisters. The problem was that I had fading light. So I had this very beautiful porthole that looked into this, you know, my little cabin and I had sort of terrible painting in the in the shot. And I decided to do it and I had been upset all day so I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do something fun and great because I thought the three sisters would be hilarious, me dressing up as three women. The youngest one, Irina, and she was just in a white doona and I had a belt on and I had a wig and I had my Hawaiian shirt. I just kept my Hawaiian shirt on, which always had my name tag on. <laughs> my name tag is always in every shot because you had to wear it even though there was no passengers. And then the second sister, I choose Masha. She's a little bit more sort of fun, so I dressed her up a little bit with sunglasses. But the third sister, Olya, Olga, is the one where I lost my mind because she's the oldest. And I realised as I was filming it that I don't really know the story of the three sisters. So as I'm being Olya, I'm knitting, I pretend knitting, and my accent went a bit bung I kind of end up being a northern lady and I can't really do a northern, northern accent. Northern English. Northern English accent. Yeah, I couldn't, I can't, I'm not good at it. I gave it a go. At one point I just went, oh, my God, I'm a totally middle-aged man sitting inside a cabin in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with a doona on pretending to knit and something cracked. And I went, okay, there's two choices. One is I go, this is the most pathetic thing in the world. No one is as pathetic as this. And that would have been tears. Or I went, I think I'm just going to try and hang on to filming because it's we're losing light and became hysterical. And that would last for days. I found myself unable to finish sentences for days and days after that because I just went, lost my mind. <laughs> Over the harbour, and then you're in the water, like far, far in the water. You still don't really know where the crew deck is. And then, <laughs> and then before you know it, you're in the Philippines. Thank you for watching The Three Sisters by Drew Fierier. It has been such an amazing event. It has taken only minutes to make. And with the fading light, it feels more and more like maybe things are truly finishing up here. We'd never know. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> it's, so, it's so odd here. I think maybe truly I have cracked. <laughs> cool. So what did it feel like or how did you find out that you were being repatriated, that, that you were getting off the ship? Um, I had friends in Australia who contacted all those people. So we, DFAT and all those people were kind of part of the repatriation, and it was huge. There were several people, probably 12 people involved in the constant conversation about, you know, Port Authority and it was really big. So when it finally happened and I got the ticket emailed to me, 
I went, oh, my God, it's going to happen. It's so incredible. When we got to the day of the flight, there was a typhoon. (laughs) (laughs) So we couldn't go. And everyone was really okay with that because a typhoon, this is how out of it we were, typhoon felt like something we could understand. (laughs) We went, oh, yeah, typhoon, I suppose that would mean I don't want to fly in a typhoon. We were like that. Then it was the following week that we went and then we were in hotel quarantine where I just stayed kind of in bed for two weeks and food got brought to me. I was so happy there. Right. Yeah. And because you were back on land? Yeah, and I knew when I'd be getting out. So mm. that that certainty, is it changes everything. If I, and people say this, so why don't you see it like a holiday on the ship? And I went, I would have if I knew it was two months. I would have got a tan. I would have gone in the pool. I would have done all those things. But it's very different when you don't know what it's going to be. And some of the scenarios that could have happened were very terrible. So I kind of, I lived with all of them in my head. I couldn't just be in that beautiful place like I was in hotel quarantine when I went, I just get to go to bed for two weeks, which I really took advantage of. And then I, one day I will walk out. Mm. The cabin represented everything because it was, I think psychologically, this is what I think, is that people go, yeah, I'm in a cabin too. Like everyone was in some sort of cabin, be it, just in your own head going, what's happening? Or you literally couldn't leave your house. I mean, the, you know, that was emerging around the world. And so I think it was that was uh, relatable. But being in a nice hotel, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was too nice. It's a bit Kardashian suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very Kardashian. <laughs> Cause I know that I am strong I don't need you anymore So what is a creative thing that you can recommend to listeners to do for their own mental health, Mm. for their own creative pursuit? It doesn't have to be good. No, no. Being good is the enemy to creativity. My recommendation, and I have done this, um, is to go and find a tree and time put a timer on your phone for five minutes and only look at the tree and only recognise its magnificence because it gives you an opportunity to go each individual tree, and there are many, billions, each individual tree has as much right to be an incredible creative thing as anything you do. So you look at, you know, you stare at the tree and the more you look, the more you find and then you start going, oh, my God, everything's really, it sort of creates positivity. But the other thing is you start going, wow, they're really, really incredible and they're everywhere. So there's sort of a, creativity is not special. It's the exact opposite. It's everywhere. It's quite common. It's just um, beneficial. It's a beneficial hobby, I suppose. I still see myself as having a hobby sometimes, but yeah. Don't be good. Don't try and be good and just do it. Keep doing it. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. A big thank you to Drew Fairley, actor, writer, singer and performer. Merigong Theatre in Wollongong has commissioned Drew to write a new work inspired by his experience on the cruise ship. So be sure to look out for that. You can see all of Drew's actual cabin, actual fever videos on Instagram. His handle is Drewza, and we'll put links to his work in the show notes. In the Making podcast is by Makeshift, 
a support and education agency connecting creativity and mental health for social change. Discover more about how creative practices are good for your health at makeshift.org.au. You can get 10% off our Press Play programs with the code INTHEMAKING. And if you want to learn about how to support your friends and family who are going through a difficult time, you can sign up to one of our mental health first aid courses. For more, follow Makeshift on Instagram and Facebook. And if this episode has brought up any issues or triggers for you, contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. That's 1300 224636. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on your favourite podcasting app. Or even better, just tell your friends to listen. The theme music was composed and performed by Alana Stone, and the songs in this episode are performed and recorded by Drew Fairley. Our sound engineer is Chris Hancock. Logo and cover art are by Chiara Mucci. You can find links to all their work in our show notes. Makeshift was co-founded by Caitlin Marshall and Lizzie Rose. I'm Jennifer Macy. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast was produced on the land of the Wadi Wadi people of the Dharawal Nation. I acknowledge and pay my respects to the original storytellers and artists of this land. <laughs>